Hello and welcome to another episode of Faith in Politics. This month we're going to be talking about homelessness and rough sleeping with a couple of great interviews with Baroness Hilary Armstrong, who started the Rough Sleeping Initiative as Housing Minister in the last Labour government, and David Smith, who works with Oasis Community Housing in the North East, will then be musing on what it means to be distinctive uh, in Christian social action. got plenty to get through so let's jump straight in to our first interview with David Smith. Now David is the chief executive of Oasis Community Housing which is a Christian homelessness charity based in the northeast of England, the best part of England if you ask me, and they seek to support and address both the immediate needs and the root causes of homelessness. So David has a good sense of what's happening on the ground at the moment during the pandemic as well as some thoughts on how we should move forward. David, thank you very much for joining us. Just before we talk about the crisis of homelessness in the context of the coronavirus pandemic, could you paint us the picture of what the situation with homelessness was like going into this? Well, it's nice to be with you. The truth is we came into this crisis in a bad place as a country in the United Kingdom when it comes to homelessness. It's been growing consistently for the last 10 years. And... Um, we know that at this point, you know, the, the most visible form of homelessness, which is rough sleeping, uh, there are about between four and a half and 5,000 people minimum per night on a given night who are rough sleeping in, in the country. And for the last 10 years, apart from this year, actually, that's been increasing. It's 165% higher than in 2010. Um, but even rough sleeping in itself is the tip of the iceberg because it's the most visible form of homelessness. But we know at least 300,000 people otherwise uh, are experiencing some form of homelessness, whether that be uh, rough sleeping, whether it be um, just being vulnerably or temporarily housed, living with uh, friends or acquaintances. Uh, so it, it's a major problem. I mean, that's, that's higher than the population of a city like Newcastle, for example. So this is a deep um, systemic and fundamental challenge that we have in this country. Um, that over 300,000 people don't have a home to call their own. So we came into the crisis not in a great place. How has the coronavirus shaped your work in the last few weeks? The coronavirus crisis has shaped our work in a way that I think we're still just absorbing. Um, we feel like we're just coming out of the first part of the crisis and so haven't quite had all the reflection that I would like in order to be able to answer that question. But the, the truth is certainly in the first several weeks of the crisis, uh, in many aspects of our work, it was changing day to day, changing like in so many sectors of society because uh, the government advice was changing, the context and the circumstances was changing, um, the issues faced by the people we were serving were changing, sometimes on a day to day basis. So the first few weeks was breathless and uh, each day brought its, its own challenges. Now we feel that we've settled into a bit of a pattern and uh, we feel that we've got a little bit more of a handle on what the issues are for people who are particularly uh, at the, the sharpest edge of homelessness, those that might be rough sleeping, those that 
um, have got the associated issues like mental health crisis or um, substance abuse and, and so on. So the people that have got the multiple and complex needs, they've been the most challenging to try and support during this time. But we also have a range of, of homes up and down the country where um, it's not changed quite so much. It's not been uh, so much a case of day-to-day uh, -day changes. We've had to implement um, public health England guidelines, etc., like everybody else. But the fact of the matter, people live with us um, and there's only so much is going to change in that, that scenario. So it's been a, a real mixed bag, but um, it feels after you know, the, the first few weeks that we, we then started to slowly settle down into, okay, this is the new reality and how do we, how do we go on from here? So you've talked a bit about how things have changed um, over the last few weeks. Who is the most vulnerable at the moment, would you say, to homelessness? Has that changed or is that the same situation? That's a great question. I, th I would say that the most vulnerable people remain the most vulnerable people, uh, the people that were um, those with multiple and complex needs, uh, those who were already on the street, uh, those who were already uh, very vulnerably housed, um, are the people that this crisis has affected the most, uh, in the sense that you know when you're self-isolating, you're told by the government to self-isolate. If you've nowhere to self-isolate, you've immediately got a problem. Um, and if the place that you're self-isolating in is not safe, you're going to continue to be the, the most at-risk uh, category. Uh, that being said, I think it's probably safe to say that there are people who were uh, teetering on the edge and have been pushed over into vulnerability because of the crisis. Um, that's people that, for instance, might have been staying with um, family or friends, uh, sofa surfing, etc. Um, and then you know, there's one thing to do that uh, in normal circumstances, but then to do that in lockdown um, in when people are self-isolating and you're all on top of each other. I mean, it's all a struggle for those of us with families and so on. They're all living on top of each other at the moment anyway. But in situations where it was already tense, you know, people can be pushed over into that um, extreme vulnerability because essentially they could be asked to leave. Or for those that we've seen, you know, the spike in domestic abuse, um, again, brought on by that sort of hothouse uh, to an extent of, of, uh, of lockdown. And, uh, you know, we've seen that anecdotally so i think one of the things we've also seen coming up maybe more in the media um is those who have no recourse to public funds um but the, the ways in which rules have shifted to kind of support them more um is that something you've experienced is that improving worsening i, I think in the short term yes i think it has improved um in the sense that we know that there was this urgent um, response by the government and then local authorities to get uh, anybody who was rough sleeping or uh, homelessness in that category uh, into accommodation. And it seems fair to say that about 90% of those that were rough sleeping or who, and many of whom had no recourse to public funds, of course, um, before the crisis began, have been housed, but that's by the government's figures, and, and they seem to be about right uh, from anecdotally from what we can see on the ground. Um, and that's to be welcomed. That's that shows that 
uh, political will and creative thinking can lead us to make huge strides in tackling homelessness if, if we commit ourselves to it. Uh, so we, we absolutely welcome that. At the same time, you know, the current solutions are temporary at best. Um, because, you know, for instance, in our circumstances uh, where we're working, uh, particularly in the northeast of England, um, where lots of people have been put into hotels and it's been the same all around the country, we are start supporting people that have been put into those hotels. And, and the truth of the matter is um, people need better support than they're getting. There's an extent to which they have been uh, shelved, you know, into hotels. They've been, you know, placed there as an emergency option. And whereas that was welcome in an emergency, it's not something that we should be aspiring to for the uh, medium term, let alone the long term. Um, we've already seen the problems that it's created. Uh, we know that the people that we are serving need specialist support. Um, and, you know, that can't be provided in a hotel. Uh, even some of the basic needs can't be provided in a hotel. So I think our goal has got to be ensure that everyone has a home of their own in the end. That's, that's really the, the gold standard and if necessary, the support that they need to sustain that home. Um, so yes, I, I would say that the uh, response has been a good response. Uh, we've seen that actually a great deal can be achieved when there's political will and resource to go alongside it. At the same time, it can't be anything more than a temporary solution because we're already seeing the problems that have come out of the temporary solution. You talk about people being put in hotels and in this temporary accommodation. The government have said that every rough sleeper should receive that emergency accommodation. It seems that in some media reports that that hasn't happened yet. Is that your experience on the ground or is everyone that you've come across been put in that emergency accommodation? Certainly not everyone. I, I would say the majority. Um, I suppose what the government figures don't show is that um, there's constantly uh, a churn in the short term. You know, that there are, are people being evicted from hotels. And again, that goes back to my point about this, the support um, that um, people who have not been used to living indoors or who have multiple and complex needs who may be uh, addicted to a substance, who may have mental health, uh, ill health needs, um, who are just not uh, used to being in those circumstances, need. Uh, and additionally, when you put um, many people together with some of those needs, often that can lead to additional challenges that, you know, there can be a, a downward spiral, to be, to be blunt, where damaging behaviours can be reinforced, for instance. Um, and we're also seeing, incidentally, that you know that there are a real mixture of people put into hotels um, and temporary accommodation, and you can have in one room uh, someone, you know, a seasoned rough sleeper uh, with, you know, serious mental health or substance abuse challenges that need proper attention and proper support, next to a young family who have found themselves homeless for an entirely different set of circumstances. Um, and that, you know, at so many levels, is, as I said, it's, it, it's a necessary or has been a necessary temporary solution, but it cannot be more than that. And uh, our concern is that many of the people staying in these hotels will get a, a letter under their doors saying, OK, you're out by tomorrow. Maybe even you're out later today. 
Um, and uh, we need to be prepared for when that happens because that will happen and it will happen probably quite soon. Um, the great thing at the moment is that there is an opportunity having uh, outreach to so many people who are, are homeless and in crisis and found the temporary solution. We know where they are. We know that we can work with them, we connect with them. And so we have the opportunity at this point, an opportunity that we've not had in, in, in living memory, I would say, to make serious inroads into the issue of homelessness. But we've got to be prepared for that. We've got to be prepared uh, to you know, fund uh, those agencies, uh, whether public or uh, charitable, whatever it may be, that are going to work with those people. We need to have uh, homes available uh, for those people. Uh, we need to have the whole package so that we can take advantage of this rare opportunity. Uh, but it remains to be seen whether we will have that or not. At Oasis, you're also a Christian charity. How does this impact your work? And what would you like to see Christians and churches doing at this time, but also more long term? Well, it's certainly the, the thread that is woven throughout everything that we do. Um, I mean, we serve everyone and anyone, regardless of their faith, uh, regardless of, of how we, we meet them. But our motivation as an organisation um, is the person of Jesus Christ and um, so it's woven through our whole motivation. Um, it stimulates the values that we have, values like hope, um, always believing in the, the possibility that, uh, that things can get better for people. Um, life, you know, that's another core value for us, that, that idea that, you know, people can have a, a life better than the life they'd ever dreamt for themselves. Um, so throughout all of our values, perseverance as well, worth, seeing individuals, I think that's a, to me, that's one that particularly resonates, uh, that we approach everyone as, uh, with the Imago Dei, you know, the idea that everyone is made in the image of God, and regardless of what their circumstances are at that point, regardless of what they've done, they have an inestimable value um, that can't be shaken, and they have the same value as everybody else, and therefore they have the same needs, and they have the same um, rights really they're the same right to have a home they've the same right to dream for a better life so in terms of our motivation it's absolutely central to everything that we do as an organization it's why you know we were set up you know 35 over 35 years ago now um, to specifically care for uh, those who are disadvantaged uh, disadvantaged in this way so that's that's key in terms of the the churches um, and Christians more generally, you know, I would invite them to do several things. One, support organizations like us, you know, volunteer with organizations like us. And, and there are many organizations inspired um, by a Christian motivation up and down the country. Uh, not that many doing ho uh, homelessness work, interestingly, in the way that we do it. But there certainly are um, Christian organizations out there. So volunteer with us, pray for us. Um, you know, support us financially if you can. I would also encourage, you know, this is the Faith in Politics pod podcast, I would encourage Christians to actively get involved in politics um, and to seek to change, um, you know, the reality, the political reality. In the end, I, I believe as much as people make their own personal uh, choices and sometimes that leads to, you know, damaging situations, there's also a structural issue here. You know, there is a political issue. 
So there's a whole array of things that, that the church can do uh, and is doing uh, up and down the country to tackle this issue of homelessness. David Smith, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. So we're now able to get more of a political angle on this with an interview with Baroness Hilary Armstrong, who started the Rough Sleeping Initiative as the Minister covering housing during Tony Blair's government and is now a member of the House of Lords. Baroness Armstrong, thank you very much for joining us again on the podcast. You were on last year talking about your political career more generally as well as your faith background and we've invited you on today to talk more specifically about homelessness um, particularly related to the current uh, COVID-19 crisis. Now in recent times rough sleeping has almost come to be seen as a bit of an inevitability, Um, it's just a fact of life, but the Labour government you were a part of massively reduced rough sleeping Could you tell us a little bit about how you achieved this? Well, when we got to um, uh, be in government in uh, 1997, the Prime Minister um, talked to several of us about his determination to tackle social exclusion. And we set up the Social Exclusion Unit, and I was part of working with them. And I I was local government minister and housing minister, And I was particularly concerned with um, how local government could respond to the poorest and the most vulnerable in our society. And um, we got the social exclusion unit to do an in-depth look at how you could realistically tackle rough sleeping, what you could do to actually really reduce rough sleeping and make it that there were only a few who had particular problems but that you were working with them. In a sense we always knew that there were a very hard core who would have addiction problems, who would have mental health problems, who um, it was very difficult to get inside. We knew that but nonetheless we, um, we looked at the whole thing and the social exclusion unit came up with a very um, tough strategy and we set up a rough sleeping unit within the uh, department and we appointed Louise Casey to, uh, um, uh, to be the director of the uh, rough sleepers unit and to follow up and really put into practice the, um, uh, the strategy that had come out of the social exclusion unit report and the and what she did was she'd come from a background she'd worked for shelter she'd worked for um a, a, one of the other direct provider organizations in homelessness um and she basically we decided together that we had to start with the most difficult because if you could get the most difficult in and work with them, then you really stood a chance of um, changing things. And within um, about two and a half years, we reduced the numbers of rough sleepers by about, well, by over two thirds. So that had been what our target was to do that within the lifetime of the government. And we exceeded the target, but we knew we had to keep going. And there was a very clear strategy. 
Um, by the time we finished, Louise knew the name of virtually every rough sleeper on the streets. Um, she made sure I knew a fair number of them too. Um, I would go out with her occasionally to do, um, uh, to just go and see who was out there, what the issues were, what the challenges were. And it was, a, I, I learned an enormous amount through that. I learned that of course people don't want to be on the streets, but they also don't want to be somewhere where they feel unsafe and where they feel totally neglected. And all of them had come to rough sleeping because of trauma in their lives in some way. And you can't just see it as a mechanical thing that they want somewhere to live and you offer them somewhere to live and that sorts it. It doesn't. We developed a whole series of strategies around tackling their addiction, because many of them had an addiction problem by then, even if they didn't have one when they started on this journey that had led to them to be where they were. Um, uh, and many of them had um, some mental health issues, other health issues. You know, I mean, people who have to live on the streets um, end up dying earlier than the rest because they are so susceptible to whatever is going around. But we also had to stop people thinking the only way you help, helped rough sleepers was to put services on the streets. So we had a very, we had a very bizarre period where I was sending Louise out to um, uh, speak to Boy Scout groups and so on and church groups, persuading them that actually maybe um, uh, soup runs and so on weren't the best answer. Um, and we also closed down the um, winter shelters, which was where rough sleepers went at the heart of winter, and they would get donations. Crisis would do it, and we, you know, we had a long journey with Crisis to shift this where they got most of their donations and most of the, and they got fantastic offers for rough sleepers of really good sleeping bags and good equipment um, at the winter shelter and the Christmas appeal. And eventually even crisis came into saying, we know that this is not the most effective way to treat people. We need to help them off the streets and then work with them when they're off the streets. So rather than them be given super duper uh, sleeping bags, let's get them off the streets into safe accommodation, dealing with the problems that they've been facing, uh, sorting out their legal problems, um, sorting out their housing problems, their financial problems, and perhaps begin to get them near to talking to their families again, and, and so on and so forth, sorting out their health problems. All of that was really difficult. I had somebody who actually um, got very angry with me uh, from the Methodist church. And, you know, I had him in and came and talked to him uh, and so on, because he thought we were trying to force rough sleepers off the streets. We weren't. But what we were doing was saying, let's work together inside rather than try to work outside 
because you only had to go round and you would see how vulnerable people would be. I remember one uh, incident we went in those days, there used to be a grouping of rough sleepers at the back of the Savoy Hotel. And we went there one night and they worked out that, you know, this was um, a big wee, as it were, had come to uh, see them. <laughs> and eventually this one came to talk to me and he said, I gather you're the minister. I want you to stop people doing these soup runs. We don't mind the first one. It comes about seven o'clock and we get our supper then and they go away. But then he says, others keep coming and they're waking us up. And he says, then we're already full. And so they're leaving the food and the rats are coming. So we want you really to tell them, we want this organized. We don't want soup run after soup run through the night. And that was a good lesson to me. But it was also them saying, you know, we're not just here um, for people to feel sorry for us. We actually want some real thinking about what's the best way to help us and to see our future. Looking back, is there anything you would have done differently which might inform the response to the current crisis? Obviously, as you've outlined, there was great progress on rough sleeping, but there was a point in 2004 where there were over 100,000 households in temporary accommodation, for example. Yeah, yeah. No, the key thing was available accommodation. And it's very difficult to realise, but in 1997, when we got into power, the biggest issue was unfit accommodation. And particularly unfit council accommodation. Because the council sector, council housing sector had been starved. And uh, much of their accommodation you know, hadn't been upgraded since it had been built in the early post-war years. So our biggest challenge, and what we did certainly in the first two years, was um, uh, set out the standards for properties and money through the sale of council houses to upgrade those properties. Now, the reality is, there needed to be, at the same time, um, there should have been a, a, a strategy to build more houses. But quite honestly, you know, we'd agreed only to spend what, um, uh, this had been one of our election strategies that we said we would keep the public spending targets um, that the Conservatives had for the first two years. And that meant we had to very carefully work out how we spent the money and we spent that money on getting councils to upgrade accommodation because some of it was getting so bad and some tower blocks were so bad we were blowing those up um, and we were getting rid of them because they were so bad um, but uh, what we should have had was a much bigger council house program and housing program and um, uh, um, I, if I regret anything, that's what I regret. But as I say, within the money that we had available, what we did was we changed the rules so that they could use some of the money that they got from selling council houses on refurb um, and on upgrading their housing. And that was our priority at that stage. Many people have expressed anger and frustration in the last few weeks that 
after being so, told for so long that rough sleeping would take years to solve, the government's target was initially 2025, that rough sleeping has effectively been ended overnight during this crisis. Do you think that that shows, even without a pandemic forcing its hand, that when the state really puts its mind to something, when there's the political will, that it can end these injustices that can be seen as inevitable? Or were, were those initial targets uh, justifiable? No, the, we, we managed to do it. As I say, there were still a few left on the streets who needed very specific and careful um, work. Um, but, but the main problem we had solved. You didn't see people on the streets in um, 2001. You just didn't see them. Um, but we've always known that it is possible to sort it as long as you have both the numbers of beds available and the people to work with. You know, the people being employed to work with those that you're getting off the streets. But the truth is the government took their eye off the ball. And uh, after the financial crash, it became a very easy area to squeeze financially. And I was very frustrated that their target was 2025 when it was 2025 and used to get into trouble for accusing the government of being too complacent. We've talked about mainly today about rough sleeping, um, but it's important yeah. to recognise homelessness that often doesn't include sleeping on the streets. Do you yeah. think we might see a reduction in rough sleeping, but a rise in less visible aspects of homelessness as a result of the current crisis? And how can that be tackled? I, I don't think you're seeing it as part of the current crisis because of the, um, uh, the very strong um, stay at home, don't mix with people. Um, and um, I think that, um, but I do think that poverty, is going to increase and is increasing and the poverty unless this is hand, the, the, the moving on from lockdown is handled extremely carefully and uh, the government recognizes the vulnerability of people in low paid work then I think it will increase because um, uh, rents there's no evidence at the moment that there's going to be a whole scale reduction in rents at the end of this. And um, uh, how you're going to stop people from being evicted, from losing their jobs, um, uh, when they've already lost their jobs and they're already poorer than they were at the beginning of this. And that is the real challenge. Uh, and that is what scares me scares me rigid quite honestly that and as i say how much we've seen or at least i've been made aware of through organizations like changing lives of the exploitation of the most vulnerable they they're the scary things thank you very much and finally the one question we like to ask all our interviewees if you could ask one question of the prime minister what would it be it would be that as we come out of the crisis, how are you going to make sure that more people are not pushed into things like homelessness because of the levels of poverty? You've got to be firm and crisp with your uh, uh, questions to the PMOs. He can wander all over the place. So uh, 
I would work on it to get it firm and crisp. Baroness Armstrong, thank you very much for joining us on Faith in Politics. Thanks very much indeed. Two really interesting interviews there. What me and Rosella wanted to reflect on was how Christian social action can be distinct. It was something that came up through both of the interviews in relation to homelessness. We wanted to broaden out that conversation. Unfortunately, in what Hillary said, uh, it was often the fact that churches were trying to do too much or that what they were doing wasn't fully thought through with the kind of multiple soup kitchens in one area uh, of London, which marked out the church groups as distinctive. Uh, and I certainly know uh, stories of churches who are desperate to help, but don't necessarily think through what they're doing. <laughs> yes, that's something I had a little look at and see where that fits in with wider research. And I think one of the things that stood out, there's a lot of great stuff um, that we'll probably get into later on, but one of the things that stood out to me was a majority of faith-based charities talked about their challenges with monitoring and evaluation. And 41% of these organisations surveyed said that they found that the process of evaluation was wasting resources that could be better used elsewhere. And I think that shows some of that, I guess, risk of disregarding the importance of monitoring and evaluation, which is a staple part of um, charity um, NGO work yes and so, so ignoring that there's a danger that we see work that's not actually meeting the needs of people or potentially even making things worse yeah there's definitely an eagerness on behalf of churches to get involved but, but that eagerness sometimes uh, turns into a lack of that evaluation and monitoring that you notice one of the things that David talked about was that his Christian faith was woven throughout the motivation of Oasis and I think motivation for social action is certainly one of the key things that our faith gives us which is why so many Christians are involved in it. Yeah and again that's backed up by research so apparently um, according to the National Church and Social Action Survey found that UK churches on average per year are providing 114.8 million hours of volunteering each year. And over the last 10 years, the number of faith-based charities registered with the Charity Commission has been greater than the number of non-faith-based. That's an incredible stat, isn't it? But I think what we're more interested in is how faith actually informs practice as well as just impetus in social action. So another of the things that David talked about was that the the fact that Oasis is a Christian charity informed their values of hope and of perseverance. And I think those values are really important, that as Christians we have a sure and certain hope that is grounded in the reality of the resurrection and the promise of new creation. It's not just optimism that things can get better for the people we're helping, but it's a real hope that the actions we take are part of a broader divine mission. And on perseverance, I think the fact that Christians do social action, not just in their own strength, but relying on God's, relying on his help and knowing that it's not all down to them. And I think that probably gives Christian organisations extra motivation to keep going when things seem helpless. Yeah, that's something I hadn't really thought about before, um, but I guess it, it, make, it fits with where we're coming from as a 
as from faith-based organizations and again something that has come up in research this is i think particularly interesting because it comes from a non-faith organization um the npc who've done research into faith-based charities and that was something that they picked out was that perseverance that people of faith are more likely to keep going and to keep pushing towards their goals even when it seems difficult so yeah it's interesting that that is something that's that's been seen as distinct not just within the church but externally but i suppose these things hope perseverance care for the most vulnerable although they are christian values and it seems that they might be ones that are more common amongst christians than in the general population they aren't ones that can't be present elsewhere like other people also have hope and have perseverance so what makes the way we do things distinct and indeed does it need to be i suppose um, i think there's a there's a rowan williams quote where he defines mission as finding out what god is doing and joining in and i think sometimes all we need to do as christians is to find out where the best work is happening and just helping and joining in with that rather than needing uh, to feel distinct at the start of the coronavirus crisis we had a conversation in jpit around mutual aid groups because we were trying to quickly put out guidance for churches and individuals of how they can help in their communities and we had a conversation about whether we should encourage churches to make use of their own networks or start up their own um, initiatives or whether we just encourage people to join these mutual aid groups that were popping up everywhere yeah and i think there's there's a humility in that isn't there to be able to say you know we're when we when willing not to be the lead in this we're willing to just go and offer our service and yeah to help those that are doing work well rather than just trying to do it ourselves and again that's something that does happen more widely which is encouraging i read a statistic that 85 percent of faith-based charities um, say that they're regularly collaborating with other people. So it is good to see that there may be loads of different churches and charities, but they are working together. And yeah, again, something we definitely see in our work in JPIT with collaborating with other organisations and their expertise. Yeah, I think you're right. It is about that humility, isn't it? And ultimately, if we're worrying more about how we stand out from secular, so secular social action projects, than we are about actually meeting the needs of the people we're caring for, then we've already gone awry in some senses. It's not to say that we shouldn't think about Christian distinctiveness, but I don't think it should be a priority. But of course, there are things that are distinctively Christian. And I guess another question is, if you introduce those distinctively Christian things like prayer or sharing your faith with the people you're serving in social action, how do you do that without it appearing like it's a means to an end of evangelism? Yeah, I think this is one of perhaps one of the biggest sticking points in faith-based social action. And because people do want to share their faith, I think most of us would agree that that's one of the most important things we have to offer. Um, but it's how do we do that in a way that isn't exploiting, isn't this proselytization and um i think one of the ways i've found when i was looking into this is that it's important to recognize that the church has something to offer in terms of meeting spiritual needs it's not necessarily about trying to get people to behave like christians um but it was in the case of the charity cap 
term which deals with helps people with in debt and the th the point that was being made in this article was that yes there might be other schemes like say government schemes run by local councils to help people economically deal with debt but it's often a much more deeply rooted issue in people's lives debt can lead to relationship breakdown it can lead to people severely struggling with mental health issues and the church has something to speak into that that perhaps an organized council body can't do and actually the relationship that's built in those meetings is perhaps even more important than dealing with the material needs. Yeah absolutely and I suppose there is that kind of more subtle sharing of faith that comes through the actions that you're doing you know there's the verse in John 13 uh, says by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Um, I remember learning at, at Theological College about a certain group of people, uh, I forget their name, who believe that all evangelism, all evangelism should simply be enticing people to want to ask about your faith because of the way that you're serving and loving other people in the community. Kind of taking that Francis of Assisi quote, preach the gospel at all times, use words if you have to, to its extreme. And part of me would love that to be the case for that to be all evangelism but unfortunately I think it is a bit idealistic and not a reflection of what the bible uh, calls us to do but I think what you said about the meeting spiritual needs is really important that meeting people's spiritual needs isn't just through bringing them to church or uh, wanting them to become a Christian but it's something a lot deeper than that and I think that distinctly Christian nature can maybe arise organically in social action without it needing to be uh, through organisational instructions to do certain things. Yeah, I think that definitely brings some of the much needed nuance into the conversation around the church and social action and how we bring all aspects of the church into something cohesive that works together. And on that note, let's end our monthly musing. I'm sure after hearing about homelessness and rough sleeping through this podcast, some of you will be wanting to know what you can do at this time. Um, there's actually a blog on the JPIT website that was written by Dan a few weeks ago talking about how to help homeless charities at this time. The main thing is that find out what your local organisations need because needs vary across the country and in local areas. So some charities will simply be looking for donations. And if that's something you're able to do, please do consider doing that. Um, others might be looking for equipment uh, or even volunteers so try and find out which homeless charities are active in your area and see what they need at this time and of course be praying for them um, at this stressful time for them. It's also a great chance to plug an event that's happening with the Joint Public Issues team and um, there's going to be a webinar focused on talking justice what does it mean to be a people of justice and peace in a pandemic so if you're available on Thursday, the 21st of May, um, between 3 and 3.45, register on the JPIT website to um, attend that. And it's going to be a really great chance to discuss what it means to pursue justice in the current crisis. Thank you for listening to Faith in Politics, a podcast brought to you by the Joint Public Issues Team of the Baptist Union of Great Britain, the Church of Scotland, 
and the Methodist and United Reformed Churches. We hope you'll join us again next time. And finally, to close, we have a prayer from Ruth, our colleague at the United Reformed Church. As we pray, I invite you to respond to the words, God of shelter, with the words, hear our prayer. Loving God, you are our shelter in the storm. We remember before you those with no home. We think of those at risk of losing their home because of redundancy, debt or broken relationships. Help us to do all we can to support those who are in need of a safe place to live. God of shelter, hear our prayer. In Jesus, we see a God who sees and values those who society disregards. We long for the lonely to find a loving family, for mental, physical and spiritual health to be nourished, and for all our nation's rough sleepers to be treasured and given the opportunity to find home. God of shelter, hear our prayer. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wing for protection, so you long to gather your children. And so we ask for protection and stability for all who face uncertainty and difficulty finding somewhere they can truly live. Help us find a way to ensure that each person can experience this basic human right and know the comfort and care of a loving God. God of shelter, hear our prayer. Amen.